0: This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. In this podcast, I examine logical fallacies, cognitive biases, stoic teachings from masters past and present, and tips on being better at life. I hope it will be as instructive to you as it is to me in the pursuit of thinking and doing well. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every Amazon purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark our special link at amazonevc.com. That's amazonevc.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, we're going to start with a logical fallacy, and then we'll go on to a cognitive bias. The logical fallacy we're going to look at is one that I've never, I've never heard of. Um, I think I've heard of it in practice, but I've never heard the name, and that name is amphiboly. It'll be in the podcast title and description, so you can see how that's spelled. It is an informal fallacy of ambiguity. So here's an example, and I'm using fallacyfiles.org, and I will link to this. It says, consider the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. So, the explanation on why that's an example of amphiboly is, is this. It is not clear whether the expression, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, attaches just to in the militia or to all of in the land or naval forces or in the militia. This unclarity makes a big difference, especially to someone in the land or naval forces who's been accused of committing a crime during peacetime. Okay, so that's, that's kind of interesting. My guess reading the 5th amendment would be that it's it's talking about uh land so except in cases arising in land or naval forces or in the militia and then for both of those when in actual service in time of war or public danger because land and naval forces and militia are all associated with uh with war right and public danger so that would be my guess but this is this is a sort of thing that sometimes um, politicians and lawyers and judges can get hung up on and quite possibly end up uh, making the wrong decision or giving the wrong opinion. And of course, uh, somebody's life is, is possibly on the line. So I guess in this particular example, the question would, would have to be resolved um, by consulting as many primary or original sources as possible written by the the people who Wrote the Fifth Amendment on what exactly they meant here. So, all right, so here's some more um, explanation of what's going on with amphiboly. It says, linguistically, an amphiboly is a type of ambiguity that results from ambiguous grammar, as opposed to one that results from the ambiguity of words or phrases. That is equivocation. Gotcha. Okay, I understand equivocation. And equivocation pivots on the definitions of words. And when words or phrases have multiple meanings in different contexts, and you're, you're sort of implying one meaning, but then concluding on a, on a different meaning, you're committing an equivocation, because what you're talking about isn't clear, so you can't tell if, if the statement you're making is logically true, if it logically follows. So this is sort of the same sort of thing, but instead of with words or phrases as in equivocation, it's with the grammar of how it's constructed. Okay, so that's that's clarifying to me. It says, logically, the fallacy of amphiboly occurs when a bad argument trades upon grammatical ambiguity to create an illusion of cogency. It says there are at least three distinct types of amphiboly. Okay, we've got misplaced modifiers, ambiguous reference of pronouns, and ambiguity of scope. So the first one, misplaced modifiers. Here's here's their example and explanation. In the Marx Brothers movie Animal Crackers, Groucho Marx's character Captain Spaulding has just returned from an African safari when he speaks the following lines. One morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got into my pajamas, I'll never know. <laughs> Grammatically, the adjecti- adjectival phrase in my pajamas ought to modify an elephant, which it, it immediately follows. However, common sense suggests that it modifies I. Then the amphibole is exploited for humor in the punchline. I gotcha. Okay. So to get rid of the amphibole, you would say, one morning while in my pajamas I shot an elephant. Instead of one morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas. All right. So here's uh, the second. Ambiguous reference of pronouns. Captain Spaulding goes on in the same scene to speak the following lines. We took some pictures of the native girls, but they weren't developed. But we're going back again in a couple of weeks. So the question is, which, which were undeveloped, the pictures or the native girls? The pronoun they is ambiguous between the two, though presumably intended to refer to the antecedent noun phrase, some pictures of the native girls, but its position leaves open the possibility that it refers to the phrase native girls. The punchline then plays on this uh, latter possibility. <laughs> the native girls weren't developed. Okay, then. And then number three, ambiguity of scope. It says it's a sub-fallacy called scope fallacy. Let me open that up, which we may have. Oh, it's just defining sub fallacy for me. Bad link. Okay, that's its own fallacy, so we'll I guess we'll probably get to that at some point. Okay, so here's a little bit. This is interesting. Um I don't think I've done this with one of these fallacies before, but here's a bit of history on this fallacy. It says amphiboly is one of the 13 fallacies identified by Aristotle, as well as one of the 6 that depend on language. In Aristotle's On Sophistical Refutations, the word Sophistical in the title of the treatise refers to the Sophists, who were teachers of rhetoric in Aristotle's time. According to Aristotle and his teacher Plato, the Sophists were often guilty of making ambiguous arguments, including amphibolous ones. Many of these arguments exploited types of ambiguity peculiar to the Greek language, so that they are almost impossible to translate into English. (laughs) But here's the best that Aristotle gives. I wish that you, the enemy, may capture. Who is wished to capture whom? (laughs) Do I wish that you capture the enemy, that the enemy capture you? I wish that you, the enemy, may capture. I guess that could mean either. That's interesting because, um, you know, I'm a bit familiar with the phrase like sophistry, somebody who speaks sophistry, somebody who, I guess, is connected to this idea of making ambiguous arguments, Never, never really quite nailing down and being, you know, exceedingly clear on what is meant and what their position is. So I guess that would mean anybody who is kind of being slippery in that way is is being a, uh, is being engaging in sophistry. Okay, I'll link to this. There's a couple more interesting things there that you can read about this, but I'll link to this page. Let's go on to uh, cognitive bias, and for that, my resource is, as always, Rolf DeBellis, The Art of Thinking Clearly. We're going to look at chapter 98, The Intention to Treat Error. Why Speed Demons Appear to be Safer Drivers. All right, he writes, You'll find it hard to believe, but speed demons drive more safely than so-called careful drivers. Why? Well, consider this. The distance from Miami to West Palm Beach is around 75 miles. Drivers who cover the distance in an hour or less will cate- will categorize as reckless drivers because they're traveling at an average of 75 miles an hour or more. Jeez, when was this written? All others we put into the group of careful drivers, which group experiences which group experiences fewer accidents. Without a doubt, it is the reckless drivers. They all completed the journey in less than an hour, so they could not have been involved in any accidents. This automatically puts all drivers who end up in accidents in the slower driver's category. This example illustrates a treacherous fallacy, the so-called intention-to-treat error. Unfortunately, there is no catchier term for it. This might sound to you like survivorship bias but it's different. In the survivorship bias, you see only the survivors, not the failed projects or cars involved in accidents. In the intention to treat error, the failed projects or cars with accidents prominently show up just in the wrong category. A banker showed me an interesting study recently, its conclusion. Companies with debt on their balance sheets are significantly more profitable than firms with no debt. The banker vehemently insisted that every company should borrow at will, and of course this his bank is the best place to do it. I examined the study more closely. How could that be? Indeed, from 1,000 randomly selected firms, those with large loans displayed higher returns not only on their equity, but also on their total capital. They were, in every respect, more successful than the independently financed firms. Then the penny dropped. Unprofitable companies don't get corporate loans. Thus, they form part of the equity-only group. The other firms that make up this set have bigger cash cushions, stay afloat longer, and no matter how sickly they are, remain part of the study. On the other side, firms that have borrowed a lot go bankrupt more quickly. Once they cannot pay back the interest, the bank takes over and the companies are sold off, thus disappearing from the sample. The ones that remain in the debt group are relatively healthy, regardless of how much debt they've amassed on their balance sheet. Now, if you're thinking, okay, got it, watch out. The intention to treat error is not easy to recognize. A fictional example from medicine. A pharmaceutical company has developed a new drug to fight heart disease. A study proves that it significantly reduced... reduces patients mortality rates. The data speaks for itself. Among patients who have taken the drug regularly, the five-year mortality rate is 15%. For those who have swallowed placebo pills, it is about the same, indicating that the pill doesn't work. However, and this is crucial, the mortality rate of patients who have taken the drug at irregular irregular intervals is 30%, twice as high, a big difference between regular and irregular intake. So the pill is a complete success. Or is it? Here's the snag. The pill is probably not the decisive factor. Rather, it is the patient's behavior. Perhaps patients discontinued the pill following severe side effects and thus landed in the irregular intake category. Maybe they were so ill that there was no way to continue it on a regular basis. Either way, only relatively healthy patients remain in the regular group, which makes the drug look a lot more effective than it really is. The really sick patients, who who for this very reason couldn't take the drug on a regular basis, ended up populating the irregular intake group. In reputable studies, medical researchers evaluate the data of all patients whom they originally intend to treat, hence the title. It doesn't matter if they take part in the trial or they drop out. Unfortunately, many studies flout this rule. Whether this is intentional or accidental remains to be seen. Therefore, be on your guard. Always check whether test subjects, drivers who end up in accidents, bankrupt companies, critically ill patients, have, for whatever reason, vanished from the sample. If so, you should file the study where it belongs, in the trash can. Okay, so let me just kind of review that for my own benefit and yours, I guess. Maybe you followed it better than I did. (laughs) So he used three different examples here. The first one was reckless drivers who went from Miami to West Palm Beach at an average of 75 miles an hour. And careful drivers who, um, let's see, he says, all others we put into the group of careful drivers. Which group experiences fewer accidents? Without a doubt, it is the reckless drivers. They all completed the journey in less than an hour, so they could not have been involved in any accidents. All right, so uh, so what you're doing, it sounds like, is of, of everybody who finishes, you're putting in one category, right, as, as reckless drivers, and they finished it in an hour because it's it's 75 miles and they average 75 miles an hour. But people who never finished it, presumably because they got in an accident, was never put into the reckless driver category. So, at the end of the day, you add up all the reckless drivers and they have a 100% survival rate. And then you add up everybody else and there's some accidents in there. And the accidents could have been, you know, 60 mile an hour accidents or they could have been 80 mile an hour accidents, right? You've got to look closer at it. You can't just take that superficial glance and make the conclusion that reckless drivers have fewer accidents. Okay. So, that one's, I think I, I think I get that one. The second example. Was about companies. So, a banker uh, or fellow bankers did a study looking at companies with debt on their balance sheet versus companies that had only equity, owners' equity, no debt. And every company that has debt on their balance sheet in the study is robust and healthy and profitable. So, the conclusion, the superficial conclusion, seems to be that it's healthy for companies to have some debt because all the the companies that have debt are robust and profitable but the problem was along the way companies that ended up being taken over by the bank and sold because they were no longer healthy were removed from you know for example the reckless driver category as in the first example okay so that's the issue here is you're only paying attention to the, the people or the companies or the the stud, the the, the the entities will say that that complete, right? You're only looking at those that complete. Those that don't complete for one reason or another are removed from the completed group. So if you're looking only at that completed group and you're making these conclusions about what's needed because everybody in the completed group has these characteristics, then you're going to have a pretty big problem. And when it comes to things like pharmaceuticals, you could have a very deadly problem. And when it comes to things like uh, business, you could have a very... Um, costly problem. So, that's the intention to treat error. Interesting. Okay. So, we looked at amphibole, which is one of, apparently, I didn't know this, it's one of um, Aristotle's original 13 fallacies. I'm sure equivocation's on there as well. And it's, it's similar to equivocation, but instead of exploiting uh, ambiguity in the meaning of a word or a phrase, it exploits the ambiguity of grammar. Okay. All right. That was interesting. I like that. I wasn't sure where this was going to go just because these were two really strange sounding concepts, amphiboly and intention to treat error. But I thought that was very interesting. All right. That's going to do it. Thank you so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to thinkinganddoingpodcast at com. Please consider supporting this podcast at everythingvoluntary.com by visiting patreon.com forward slash evc or paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Thank you.